I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today we're talking about Agnes Varda's final film, Varda by Agnes. You wrote this wrong here, Devin. It's Varda by Agnes, not Agnes by Varda. I'm very embarrassed for you. And the questions it poses about the nature of cinema. Is it simply a piece of lecture videography? The swan song from one of the greatest artists of our time? Both? Who knows? We're here to discuss it. Welcome to Film Formally. You gotta start. You can't just start every episode with like, today we're talking about noted filmmaker Agnes Varda's late documentaries and how they relate to. Yes, we can. I guess I can. Why not? I, it, well, because it's boring. That's not. You just. Are you saying talking about one of our favorite filmmakers is boring? So before we recorded this, we recorded an episode that you have yet to hear. That does not proceed in a linear fashion. You will hear these episodes out of order of when we recorded them. Lying to our audience. We recorded an episode about concert films. And one of the distinctions that came up was, you know, this is a good piece of videography, but a bad piece of film. And that started us thinking about these distinctions between videography and film and how we set those standards. And that kind of naturally led, I think, especially Devin to thinking about Agnes Varda. Uh, because one, she's a filmmaker who he admires a whole ton, especially her late period documentaries. And two, because he recently <laughs> bought the complete Agnes Varda box set. Is that weird flex? But okay. What's the word where you, I want to correct you there. It was uh-huh. not a, I did not buy it. It was a birthday present from my significant other. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. That's very sweet. The first disc of that is her final film, which is an odd choice, but actually works out well enough because it's kind of a lecture slash essay film. It's like a keynote. It's a keynote speak for the whole set, basically. The audio and some of the video is a series of lectures that she gave about her films at various locations and her career and how she kind of approached each of her major films and each of her major periods of filmmaking. It sort of covers some of the same ground as some of her earlier documentaries, which are definitely not lectures and are just wild reinventions of the documentary form. Yeah, so in, in particular, it's, uh, it's redundant in a few ways with uh, her 2008 film, The Beaches of Agnes. In terms of the subject matter, they largely differ mostly in that Varda by Agnes focuses more on her creative process and also benefits from being made 12 years later it covers a lot of her late installation work it covers stuff like the beaches of agnes and faces places and from here to Mm -hmm. there but aside from that there's i think significant stretches of both films that are the same footage and sometimes even the same not exact voiceover but the same at least ideas if not sometimes verbatim text being read And given that The Beaches of Agnes is a much more kind of freewheeling experimentation that jumps between like back and forth between a number of subjects, we want to talk about how these films resemble and do not videography versus film versus video essays. Well, 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 (laughs) pedal backwards, backpedal. 
this videography and film this is what they call a dichotomy yeah what so let, let's let's define our terms i'm gonna start with the easy one okay will what is cinema i refer you back to episode 20 on the word cinematic <laughs> oh no okay so can we explain what videography is at least like what is like in, in terms of what do we commonly understand to be videography and how is it distinct from maybe making cinema designed to be a distinct work of art? I mean, technically, videography is just electronically filmed material. If you film it on video, especially digitally, it's it's by the strictest definition, it's videography. But typically, when we say videography, we're referring to a commercial approach of capturing videos of things and often editing them and you know finishing them for commercial purposes so that's that's kind of the shorthand for videography and it doesn't have to be for commercial purposes but it's it's often bespoke commissioned work that is not intended to be exhibited as a standalone work of art so if you, if you know one of us would be hired to go to a say university lecture and film mm -hmm. it from say two or three angles, right. cameras on tripods. See where you're going. And then uh, edit that together to create a summary of that or mm -hmm. go to a wedding and film it from a multitude of angles and create a little video with maybe some cinematic booms in it and mm -hmm. some um, royalty-free music. Those would be common examples of videography. Yeah, I think, I think wedding videos are maybe like the ne plus ultra of <laughs> videography. Like if you... I just Googled videography right now to check, and the first non-promoted result is wedding videography in Vancouver. <laughs> I, I think really, though, what distinguishes videography from quote-unquote filmmaking, and again, I think, if I were to be honest, videography is a subset of filmmaking, probably. Yeah. Wow. You what? gave away the, you gave away oh, the no. game right Did up I give a, uh, No. Well, <laughs> anyways, I think what maybe distinguishes videography, in my view, is the intent behind it. Um, but I think it's probably a lot more complex than that. When I saw Varda by Agnes, it really challenged some preconceived assumptions I had as to what consists art cinema and videography, and I have a lot of unresolved feelings about it. Let's try to resolve them. So I wrote down some notes for each film we're talking about uh, under the heading of What Is It? Maybe a good way into this is talking about the Beaches of Agnes first. What makes the Beaches of Agnes for the Beaches of Agnes? And why is it interesting? A good place to start on that might be situating it in her late career, which I think we can start, you know, the late Agnes Varda, kind of third act of her career, maybe started with The Gleaners and I. Yeah. Um, which was her 2000 documentary. I think it's a very fair, yeah. That, that seems right by any definition. <laughs> that was certainly the film that kind of you know, brought her to the forefront of personal essay filmmaking, which is kind of what she's been making since. Um, the Gleaners and I is an interesting kind of hybrid film. It's a documentary about potato cleaners, folks who, after potatoes are farmed, come in and reclaim the rejects. The I in that title is Agnes Varda, and the film also functions as a kind of journal, a diary of where she is at that point in her life. There's a very short list of films, I think, that actually truly changed how I saw films. That's one of them. I think it's just a masterwork of lo-fi reinvention of the form. I talk about this a lot. I think everything since then has kind of extended from that film. 
Yeah. And again, she's done other documentaries before that, you know, Jane B and the young girls at 25 and a multitude of other, other films kind of yeah. prefigured There's stylistic it, through lines and through the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. But everything since then, you know, from the sequel. Oh, the Gleaners two years later. Yeah. The Beaches of Agnes, Faces, Places, Agnes Varda from here to there and her last film, Varda by Agnes, uh, kind of represent a continuum. And the Beaches of Agnes, I think, is kind of a culmination of a lot of what she's doing there. Um, because it is the most autobiographical in a very direct way that deals with her own past as a person in a very freely associative way, using a variety of really, I think, novel tools. It's The film almost comes across as a series of performance art pieces <laughs> that she engages in on camera um, to illustrate her relationship to her own past. The Beaches of Agnes continues this biographical trend that runs through her films. And it's not that all of her documentary films are explicitly focused on autobiography, though obviously The Beaches of Agnes is, but a lot of them focus on her and acknowledge her as an artist and her relationship with the subject and touches on her personal history and does it all with a nice modest touch. And I thought it one thing that would be really interesting for us to get into is what kinds of autobiography we consider artistically valid. Because one thing that I think makes Varda by Agnes seem less like a coherent artistic statement that we could show as a film and put in a top 10 films of the year list is that it really actually generally avoids going into any biographical detail that isn't strictly necessary for her to discuss her films and her motivations for making her films. And I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. A another example that I'm probably going to bring up this film a few times because I think it's a really interesting point of comparison. But another film that is similarly the last film made by a major filmmaker was very much a film by them, right? Like they led the editing. They were in control of the structure and the writing of the film. Filming Othello by Orson Welles, which was the last film he completed and the last film he filmed, unless he filmed some other random material or snippets of The Other Side of the Wind that I'm not sure about after 1979. That film, I think, also has generally, even though it wasn't available on home video until very recently, and it's only available as an extra on the Criterion edition of Othello. And that's interesting to me. It's Orson Welles, and this is a film by him. And it's kind of seen as like, oh, this is an extra. This is Orson Welles doing a kind of like behind the scenes feature ed or like feature. And but it's not it's not a film by him. It's not like a, a it's not an installment in his corpus, right? In his in his grand body mm -hmm. of work. And I think we have that instinct when it comes to artists just talking about their own work and not particularly delving into the subject of biography. I think we don't take works by artists where they play at the critic or they play at the arts analyst quite the same way, especially when it's their own art. You bring up now one of two elements, I think, that are kind of key in signaling what the intent of a piece of film is. Having watched you know, segments of the Orson Welles film, it doesn't feel like it is designed to be a fully constructed control freaky work of art in the way that 
F for fake, which was made six years earlier, was. F for fake is, from the word go, extremely flamboyant and showy formally, in a way that filming Othello is not. The first meaty scene of it is Orson Welles sitting at a editing machine <laughs> with a very hard front light on him, <laughs> talking for minutes on end with very little in the way of editing. Immediately, it is telegraphing to you by doing that, that this is something that is not meant to be ingested in the same way that Citizen Kane or Othello or F for Fake or The Other Side of the Wind were. I got a very similar vibe from the opening of Varda by Agnes, uh, in which we are introduced to the central structural conceit of the film, which is that we are watching Agnes Varda at a series, and the film makes it very clear that it is a series of lectures being in front of an audience discussing her work in life. Immediately, there's a signaling of intent in both those works that differs from, for example, The Beaches of Agnes, which opens on a vignette of Agnes Varda on a beach setting up mirrors. I really think that the first scene of any movie kind of teaches an audience how to watch it. If the first scene of Varda by Agnes and filming Othello are teaching us to watch them, we're taught that this is a film that is less a, a construction, like a holistic construction of artifice and more of a delivery mechanism for verbal thoughts. But I think it's notable that it's not just verbal thoughts, right? Like Agnes would No, been... neither are. There isn't there isn't a hard line there. <laughs> this is where it gets tricky. Like the meat of this episode and what makes this episode a little bit scary to record is that maybe more than any other episode we've kind of set ourselves an unsolvable problem, which is what are your standards? What are our standards for could we could we put a film like these made with this style in our top 10, what would be, what would make it enough? Would it be if something Varda said in the lecture was particularly revelatory about a past experience, even if it was under the exact same formal strictures? Would it be if, I mean, the end of filming Othello has like a devastating speech by Orson Welles, where he says, this is not as easy as I hoped it would be. I wish with all my heart I was looking forward to Othello instead of looking back on it. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the most emotionally vulnerable moments I've ever seen from Orson. Yeah. Um, and that alone is more moving than a lot of, more moving than most of like Mr. Arkadin. Yeah, you're getting at a really interesting question to me, which is part of my reaction to Varda by Agnes was colored by the fact that it was largely received as a really strong final film by the great auteur Agnes Varda. And that sets for a certain series of expectations. This is going to exhibit a certain level of, you know, accomplishment or, um, you know, expressiveness, you know, whatever I love about Agnes's older films will be here or it'll be supplanted by something new and exciting, uh, an artistic statement. And that isn't really what I feel like I got out of the film. The thoughts exhibited in it are really interesting. You know, Varda sure. is a consistently brilliant screen presence. But the construction around that I found to be less consistently 
innovative and fascinating than, again, her other 21st century work. There's a bit of a sense that it's not intended to be her final film statement as you watch it, which makes, yeah. I mean, it was, it was marketed, certainly, at least in my experience, as her final film. And, and it is her final film, right? But that, that, as you said, creates certain expectations. And yet, for example, the end of the movie is, she says, oh, I'm, I'm going to end this the same way I ended my second last film, Faces Places, which heavily suggests that Faces Places is her final attempt to make, you know, a, a, a single contained work of art as a filmmaker. Yet it's pretty clear that Varda by Agnes is not exactly just her slumming it with a camcorder. You know what I mean? Like there's no. there's not as much craziness, but there's one sequence where she is lecturing a bunch of cardboard cutouts of birds on a beach. <laughs> and then she does all these clever little jump cuts that sits ends her up back in the lecture hall. And that serves as a nice little commentary on, you know, she explicitly says, like, the, the problem of an artist facing an empty audience. And then there's another really great moment, which synthesizes filmmaking technique with kind of this auto film essay, whatever you want to call it, approach to studying your own films, where she's talking about how Vagabond has all these tracking shots that move from right to left. And mm -hmm. as she does that, she is sitting on a dolly that's moving from screen right to screen left. And it's all being filmed. Like the, ca the, the camera that is filming the shot that we're seeing is moving along with it from right to left. It's a clever idea. And it's, it's genuinely an innovative just mark of Varda. But maybe we don't have to necessarily receive these flashes as a signal of intent for the entire film. Maybe we can receive them as Varda's making a film. It's not meant to be quite as much of a, you know, like I said, self-contained statement as her other films. Mm -hmm. But because she's Agnes Varda, of course she's going to play and have fun and do some things that are a little crazy with it. It was actually the Vagabond sequence that got me cued into this, really. That that dolly shot and the subsequent interview with Sandrine Bonaire, which... It's still my favorite scene from Varda by Agnes. Yeah. I was more engaged than I was at any other point in the film. It almost felt this like the small oasis of uh, expressive way to frame an interview um, that exhibits one of my favorite things about Varda, which is her ability to smuggle in really brilliant formal gestures as cute, like little ideas. The little umbrellas that, that they're holding, the, the desolation of the location from Vagabond that they're sitting in, the kind of cutiness of the dolly, end up bouncing off this conversation about aging and mortality in a way that makes it poignant and moving. And then if, if I were to contrast that with the fact that, you know, probably over half the film is maybe a third is four really just functional descriptive angles of Varda in a lecture hall. There's a gulf there. And I don't know whether my reaction is more because I associate like the semiotics of videography, what I associate with videography with a lack of artistic intent or, and you know, there might be just a 
trained Pavlovian thing on my end? Or is that really not the intent of the film? I was expecting a film full of those Sandrine and Bonaire interviews when what we got was a film that is more functional. I mean, it's functional, sure, but it's also undeniably just fantastically well-crafted, even just from an editing standpoint. Super hard to cut together all this footage from all these films and these different lecture hall locations and tie it all together so that there's not a moment where her point or or the direction she's headed with things is unclear like that 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 takes a really a really strong hand you know what i mean and i i oh yeah this gets to an idea of critical evocation where we're where i think generally used to enjoying and praising films for and this this might be right you know or films or art in general for what it evokes in us emotionally or at least we expect there to be an emotionally affecting component alongside any intellectually stimulating stuff in there but in the case of Varda by Agnes or let's say just like a, a piece of film criticism or or a book on theater or what have you if there's not a focus on that kind of emotional evocation via style content form whatever you want to say then I think we're less apt to receive it as art. Maybe that just gets towards like, oh, art, like we expect it to be emotionally evocative. And I, I, I want to try to sidestep discussions of what is art because that, that is an episode we will never do. <laughs> but um, Oh, no? Oh, that's a disappointment. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm probably screwing myself by saying never. But Wait till you get to season 30. <laughs> yeah, when we're, we're properly we're out of ideas. Are we doing interesting things with the podcast form, Will? Are we leveraging the aural soundscape for emotional purposes? Maybe that's why it's easy to get disappointed by Varda by Agnes, because it's not as much trying to be a film that brings you joy or or distances you from it with its emotional sterility or anything like that. It obviously has a tone. It has more emotional moments. But... That's not just something that is like deeply woven into the particular style of this particular film. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the complaint more than is it videography? Is it not? I don't know. Varda actually directly touches on this in Varda by Agnes, where Mm. she mentions that um, when she made the beaches of Agnes, she was staring down the barrel of Adian not feeling good about it. And then in Varda by Agnes, it's clearly the work of someone who's kind of (laughs) much more deeply accepted where they are in life yeah she says now that i'm 90 i don't care <laughs> yeah and I, I mean that was that was i think a really wonderful sentiment to hear fist pump moment yeah perhaps that really informs the two films and helps explain the difference where right. in the beaches of agnes i mean the the specter of jacques demy lingers over that film heavily oh, yeah. she's processing his loss in a in real time by the time you get to Varda by Agnes, she's much more preoccupied with just celebrating their life together and their work together. I almost feel like where she was mentally really informed the emotional tenor of both the films in a way that makes The Beaches of Agnes feel like more of a you know personal, heartfelt essay. As a result of that, The Beaches of Agnes, there's more emotional notes it can play. You know, pain is maybe a bit more of an 
of a um, intense feeling to portray than you know calm acceptance. I don't think I agree. <laughs> oh no. I well, I think like uh, don't you think that there's something definitely profound and interesting in someone near the end of their life in a in a state of acceptance and repose? Like that's a to me oh, that's a very I, I'm in no way saying that saying that acceptance is less interesting, but that it's right. less intense. I don't necessarily think I look for intensity in in Agnes Varda films. And I, I know I'm, I'm strawmanning you a little bit when I say that. I don't mean to place one emotion over the other in terms yeah. of what makes good cinema, but that The Beaches of Agnes's depiction of pain lines up more with what one might expect from quote-unquote artistic cinema than Barta by Agnes's depiction of acceptance. I would kind of take my reading of how her age and acceptance of things has had changed her films like this. I would say that because she's 90 and in her words, she doesn't care. She isn't as worried about these things that you and I worry about and think about at age 30. You know what I mean? Are you saying that as 30 year old guys were not able to fully empathize with the, uh, with the thoughts running through a 90 year old uh, (laughs) legend of French cinema's brain? Are, are, I'm saying are, it might take us an extra step or two. Fully... <laughs> uh, but it, it, maybe, maybe we aren't as able to easily interface with that. Are you, Will? Yeah. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I think that it's just a matter of we have this weird expectation of major artists for everything they make that it's going to be great. I think this is actually, this touches on a problem of our reception of artists where it actually ironically makes it harder for artists to take risks or have healthy artistic careers because they don't get to have a project where they make something smaller that means less without it being (laughs) scrutinized all to hell and back for not being as big as their biggest movie, right? I mean, Varda's lucky because it seemed like whenever she tried something new formally, she knocked it out of the park every time. But not all filmmakers are so lucky to be so talented with that particular skill as Agnes Varda and sometimes people are going to screw it up and if you make like three major films and then you decide to experiment with the film and that experiment fails then sadly even if you decide oh I'm going to go back to doing what I do well that failure is still going to color what people think of you and it's going to prejudice them to thinking that oh they never should have experimented in the first place and I mean I'm not saying that Varda by Agnes is like a, a crazy experimentation but it's 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 different in that it's clearly, at least to my eyes and ears, a lower stakes project for Varda than Faces Places or The Beaches of Agnes were. I pretty much agree in that I I too feel that artists, you know, capital G great artists should be given a lot of leeway to experiment and make mistakes because that's what leads to I think, more interesting art. Um, not everyone has to be the make, you know, you make a masterpiece every eight years ideal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nor I think should they be because I think often that leads to artists squandering their potential. Can you imagine if every film John Ford made had to be great and he still had to make like 150 films? Or, I mean, every film Angus Varda made, right? I mean, her f- first feature, in my opinion, is not very good. But the process of making it enabled her to make, you know, various masterpieces. 
You know, yeah. You wouldn't have gotten Cleo from five to seven without point court. I mean, I think I've touched on this in the podcast before, but Tarantino has that ridiculous quote about like, I think like every one bad film you make is worth three great films. And with apologies to Tarantino, I, I just think that's patently ridiculous. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> and also so unhealthy. I want to go a bit deeper on the question of aesthetic signposting. Yeah. It's something I we also go into on our upcoming concert film episode. But, <laughs> and this goes back to our discussion about what is cinematic, right? When right. I see functional videography coverage, that being, you know, shots designed to cover an event efficiently and something like Varda by Agnes, a lot of things come in my mind. One is, could there have been a more evocative interesting expressive use whatever word you want way to shoot this would that have benefited the film and am i just reacting to this style of shooting in a negative way because my brain already associates that with stuff that has no artistic ambition and is it fair to do that i have no good answers for these Will, this is your your turn to answer these questions definitively. I don't have answers either. I don't. I thought you you, you came in here. You told me, Will. You said, Devin, I have all the answers. Don't you worry. Feel free to ask whatever questions you want. I will answer them definitively for posterity. I said, Devin, hold on. Before you hit record, one thing. (laughs) I have all the answers. Yeah, I think, I mean, the closest I can come is that there's no answers. We just need to be, basically, be wary of having to make these distinctions and make them... I mean, maybe what we're struggling with here is just the same problem of, like, two people struggling with trying to classify whether a film is a noir or a Western (laughs) or a romantic comedy or any other genre. Maybe this is a similar problem with the distinction of genre, which is there's there's no hard and fast rule each film is going to make its own contract with the audience and interact with the genre or lack thereof in its own way and tap into the expectations associated with that in its own way. And as far as how good or bad it is, it's not. It's only useful up to a point to try to judge how good or bad it is off of the full spectrum of cinema. You just have to try to take it on its own terms and judge how effective or useful or affecting or informative it is as its own single piece of work. And by that standard, I mean, part of Agnes is like (laughs) really good, right? Like it's a final statement. It allows her to like have a piece of work that prefaces an entire criterion collection. And if our standard is like, okay, Varda film something for someone who's never seen any of your work before that'll go as the first thing they see in a full retrospective of your work, then honestly, it's hard to imagine doing a lot better than something that doesn't have as much formal craziness and might be seen as therefore more accessible or something that is a bit more straightforward and emotionally uninvolving. Like if we're judging it by those standards, then I guess it's a terrific piece of work, but we're not used to judging films on those standards. We're used to judging them on the standards of something that you would sit down in a darkened theater with and watch. And what do you come out of that particular experience with? 
I don't I don't know if that's what this movie is, and I don't know if that's what we need to judge it by, and I don't know if we need to shoehorn it into being judged on those terms. It really can't help but be judged on those terms, though. You know, when it's it's both that, but it's also a film that was shown at major film festivals. Right. This is the problem of context of exhibition, right? Yeah. yeah. So when, you know, you're showing it at a major film festivals and then you're seeing reviews on it, gushing reviews on it on like, you know, major film art publications and uh, noted social network letterboxed um, that kind of lump it in with stuff like The Beaches of Agnes, you know, The Gleaners and I. Right. There's that contradiction. Yeah. Because it is two things in once. Do you judge the film or do you judge its context of exhibition and the things around it? And I mean, I'm in a way, I was arguing that too, right? Where I was judging like, like oh, judge it as the first film in the Criterion Collection box set of the complete yeah. Agnes Varda, right? And that's its own. That, that's a more favorable condition to judge it by. But that's not the only one that you could receive it in. I, I want to, to create a point of reference here, I want to bring up a debate that is just perennial in film music which is how do we judge a film score? Do we say, okay, we're strictly judging the film score on how well does it work for the film? How much does it, quote unquote, enhance the film? If it is super musically uninteresting and dull, but the vast majority of the people who watch the film won't notice that and it gets the film across, then it's a success. Or do we say, okay, it's those things but if you're musically knowledgeable, then you might be more likely to be annoyed by that. And therefore, it's somewhat of a failure. I mean, we're willing to judge other aspects of film on those kinds of standards. So should we do that? But now here's the other thing. If the score is pretty musically interesting and works well with the film, therefore success. But it is also released on an album. And when you listen to <laughs> the music divorced from the film then there's a lot less interest. There's not much to grab onto there. There's, it's really not all that interesting. Do we judge the score differently? Do we judge the score on the album badly? Do we judge the score on the film differently? And one problem is, do we judge the score on the album as a failure because it doesn't work well as its own self-contained experience? Or do we judge it favorably because it is an effective document of the part of the score that was in the film now divorced from images and other sounds i this guy i think it's i think this is in a similar sort of scope of problems of how it was exhibited what it was for and how it's received in different uncontrollable contexts absolutely because film scores that are commercially commercially released can't help but be both those things at once so often two people debating the worth of a film score are having two totally different conversations yeah so i, well, I mean what well, in yeah. your opinion i got a listener question from me what <laughs> film score has the largest gap in your experience between how much it aids the film and how how much it stands up as a piece of music oh great question Okay, what is I let me let me think for a moment. I haven't thought about this and I did not expect it. I'm I'm going to say that a really good example of this and I love the score. I think this is actually a really great score is Zbigniew Preisner's score for Three Colors Blue. 
is, I think, a really good example of a score that works like gangbusters in the movie. It's so smart. The way it develops the piece at the center of the film's story in different ways over and over in different scenes is fantastic. It's really evocative. The way even like those different versions are are arranged a bit differently for different contexts is really great. And when you listen to it on album, it's not that great. <laughs> it's the same piece a few times with some interesting differences. And you kind of come out of it going like, oh, this piece of the ver this version of the piece is a bit better. It is so intrinsically woven into the characters and the film, despite it being a piece that was written to fit the narrative as just a piece of pure music composed by one of the characters. It's just too tightly connected with the film. It's not like something that was given the extra material needed to work perfectly as its own piece of pure music. This is just, I mean, this is going to be just a preview of it. One day I want to do a film score episode where, at least among other things, I want to touch on when composers make album edits of their scores and that's what gets released. And that's something that bothers a lot of film score collectors who want every single piece of incidental music that was composed for the film to be on the album that they bought and which is something I, I want, but I also understand an artist thinking like a lot of the music <laughs> that I would put in there would just dilute the overall experience when divorced from the film. And it really works better uh, in this suite that I've developed. Well, that also really depends on whether you see the soundtrack release as primarily an album to be listened to or a piece of essentially documentation of the music in a film separated out, right? But to tie this back to Varda, here's what might end up being my like final position on the matter, is that generally speaking, unless we have some ethical objection, it's probably best if we judge a film in its best context. You know what I mean? Like, it's probably best if we give it the benefit of a doubt and go, okay, do I judge this as a film festival competitor or do I judge this as a Blu-ray extra? And for a lot of films, they're going to they're gonna be judged best along the same sort of terms you would judge a film festival competitor. And for a lot, it will be just the opposite. So... That makes sense, especially when you consider a lot of Varda's other work that is more minor, in, in quotes. So you have stuff like The Young Girls Turn 25, which is, it never feels like it's intended to stand on its own as like Magnus Varda's latest movie. It's clearly a kind of coda to The Young Girls of Rochefort. There's no pretensions of being its own great work of art. But I mean, Varda's done commissioned travel films um her mm -hmm. second to last film was a uh commissioned piece by i believe a fashion uh company <laughs> so um you know is no stranger to making films that are meant to serve different purposes than the next great work by noted french auteur agnes varda have you ever seen the key to reserva mm, nope the premise behind the key to reserva is that a lost Hitchcock script has been found, just part of a script. And Scorsese is hired to film this script. Uh, the thing about it is, is that it's just a giant commercial for a wine. The quote-unquote film, The Key to Reserva, yeah. ends with a big close-up shot of the wine that I'm sure Hitchcock would not have indulged in for a non for, for one of his scripts. It's It's 
a really fun piece of work. I mean, he has all these little references to Hitchcock in it, especially The Man Who Knew Too Much. He films himself at the beginning and end. And, you know, it's it's perfectly valid to judge it as a good short film, even if we're not judging it as a commercial. The initial marketing for it was a little bit annoying because I recall the initial marketing was like Scorsese, like makes new short film from lost Hitchcock script. And it was debunked fairly quickly, but it was irritating. And and so taken in that context, it's, I mean, it's obviously this is a, a problem that really dogs famous directors. Yeah. I think especially art house directors, um, even more so than commercial directors, where whatever they make, even if it's clearly not to be taken that way, is is often upheld, especially by film festivals, as here's the great new work by this. I mean, I, I, every time Martin Scorsese, for example, puts out a, a kind of a low-stress documentary about some famous uh, boomer generation musician, um, it's often upheld as like as the great new Scorsese work. I, I still don't think that these Bob Dylan documentaries are all that interesting <laughs> as films. But Of course uh, it's interesting. It extends the Tanner universe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, those, and those are fine pieces of indulgence, you know, of historical sure. whatever. I still don't really know that. <laughs> value and rolling thunder review i think that film doesn't know what it is actually and that's a huge problem it's a tanner universe extension i still don't under like what well did you watch that movie the parts with tanner oh boy um <laughs> but actually i think actually this is a, this is a good kind of like twist on this where yeah the rolling thunder review of the martin scorsese film about bob dylan's 1975 tour part of the issue with it is that it builds itself as hey look you know it's a tour documentary about a famous historical rock event Right. Right. And then it combines reality and fiction in a way that to this day, I still don't know what it was trying to do with that. So it's neither a reliable source of historical education on what happened at that tour, nor is it really enunciating much of anything as its own piece of art. So what is it? Here's the terms purely that I choose to judge the Rolling Thunder review on, having not seen the movie. Does it extend unnecessarily Robert Altman's Tanner universe? It does. I a wholehearted success. No, I, I, I know what you mean, though, where I, you're kind of touching on the problem of when a work of art doesn't... I mean, we say, like, take a work of art on its own terms unless you have some ethical objection to those terms. And I think that's I think that's a pretty pretty darn solid rule of thumb. In the case of according to you, apparent Tanner hater, the Rolling Thunder Review, it's apparently at war with itself as far as its own terms go, or if not at war with itself, um, unclear with itself about what are the terms of this documentary, what is it trying to very unresolved accomplish. Yeah. Whereas something that Werner Herzog might make where he mixes in fact with fiction, it's very clear what his terms are, and it's very clear that documentation is far from the foremost thing on his mm. mind. He's not interested in the pursuit of a, what does he call it, an accountant's truth, what Errol Morris would call truth. It's always weird to me that those guys are, are, are pals and admirers of each other's work when like, I mean, have you ever heard what Errol Morris said about Herzog? No. He said, my friend Werner Herzog calls it the ecstatic truth. <laughs> I call it 
lying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, what did we learn, Palmer? I feel like I came out of this learning some stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we had a discussion about this yeah. because um, when when a, when a film genuinely challenges my way of ingesting movies as a whole, like I would say, Varda by Agnes does, even if it's not in the totally, you know, this is a masterpiece positive way, Varda by Agnes, it did provoke me to question how I judge art and at least I, I feel I feel no closer to any concrete answers but I feel like this discussion helped bring out some of maybe the inherent assumptions I bring and that we all bring to viewing art that maybe we should be questioning more it didn't give you answers but it put terms to your questions it helped me ask the questions better <laughs> right and I, yeah, I mean, I feel just more comfortable in saying like, yeah, dude, it's just case by case. I mean, a film is never its only referent. Why do but... we always come out of these discussions more sure that everything is case by case and that there are no hard rules for anything? Why can't we just come away with a simple, pithy guideline or rule set, man? Because we, we to, pick... Like, I want some blanket we... statements here. We pick subjects we think are interesting and difficult. I mean, we d I think Failsafe, actually, the Failsafe episode, like that's a film I think we both <laughs> pretty clearly feel like we've got a strong handle yeah, on. Yeah, but with that, we did, We still didn't come up with any blank. I want blanket statements that all these youngsters can know in three easy ways to make a masterpiece, man. Nuclear War, bad. Agnes Varda, good. Next week, uh, we chat with Fred's about post-production, <laughs> I think. I think I that's think so. it. That'll be fun. Paige Smith is our associate producer. Enjoyed today's podcast? Please subscribe to it and consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. If you're loving the podcast, please consider contributing to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash filmformally. Patreon membership gives you access to bonus content, a Slack discussion channel, the ability to ask questions, and more. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 